Thank you for joining us for the Tucson Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Brent Armstrong. This podcast features the messages from the teaching and preaching ministry at our church. Tucson Baptist Church is located in Tucson, Arizona, and we are committed to loving God, growing together, and reaching our community. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit TucsonBaptist.com. We pray that today's message is an encouragement to you. Your Bibles find Revelation chapter number 11. And so you'll need this handout for this morning as well as next Sunday morning. And so I trust that all of us, our hearts are tender. I love preaching after we've had the Lord's Supper. And uh, it's really hard to partake of the Lord's Supper and then be upset with someone. So I trust that all of us are ready to listen to the Word of God this morning. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question. Are you being persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ? And then I'll follow up with that. If not, why not? Somebody said this. The problem with Christians today is nobody wants to kill them anymore. What does that mean? That means we've lost our influence. We've lost our savor. Uh, uh, If we're compared to salt, we've lost uh, the taste. If we're compared to light, we're dim, we're dirty. We literally have lost our influence. If we go to other parts of the world, though, they're still killing Christians. Do you know why some are persecuted and some are not? The Bible gives us that answer. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, verse number 12, the Bible says this, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, persecution comes in a number of different forms. Right now, in the United States of America, you're not going to die because you're a Christian. But Christians can be persecuted on the job place. They can be discriminated against. Christians have lost their job. Uh, Professional athletes, uh, if they do not uh, submit to the agendas of today, they might be removed from a team. So persecution comes in different forms. But our Bible clearly says this. All shall suffer persecution if they are living for Christ Jesus. So I wonder this morning, if you're not living godly for the Lord Jesus Christ, why not? But I can assure you, if you're not living godly for Christ Jesus, you don't have to worry about suffering persecution. Our text this morning is found in Revelation chapter number 11. We'll read just the first two verses. Please follow along as I read them. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise! Measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out, measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Father, in our time together, I ask for your control by your Holy Spirit, and that each one of us should be willing to listen, learn something from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in Revelation chapter number 11, we find ourselves in the holy city known as Jerusalem. We continue on in our series of messages. We've now preached a number of messages. We've been several months now in this series of messages on eschatology, prophecy, the study of end times. So this morning, our focus is going to be on the land of Israel. Oh, we could pick up the Word of God. We could pick up a newspaper. We could log in into the Internet, and we could find much that's being written about the nation of Israel and specifically the city of Jerusalem. Why is that? 
Because we're living in a time period where the Jews are a people of destiny and Jerusalem is a city of destiny. And we, this morning, need to understand what God has to say about this city called Jerusalem. Oh, there are some amazing end-time prophecies. Some have been fulfilled in our very lifetime. For example, God said this, that there was going to be a regathering of his people into the nation of Israel. We have witnessed that within our own lifetime. I remind you of a passage of Scripture in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the prophets in chapter 36 and verse number 24, he wrote this, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. That prophecy has been fulfilled in our very own lifetimes. Amazing. May I just tell you, you can have 100% confidence in the Bible that's in your lap. By the way, uh, that answers the question also as to who owns the land. In your notes, you might even want to circle Ezekiel 36 and verse 24, for there may be someone who says, I just disagree what's happening in the Middle East. How is it that Israel has taken over this land? It's not really their land. I remind you what God said in his word. He says, I will gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. We have literally seen this prophecy fulfilled. But there's another prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled, and that is in the city of Jerusalem, and the Bible says the temple must be rebuilt. From the text this morning, John is writing. And remember this, John is 2,000 years ago. He's never seen a helicopter. He's never seen a hotel. He's never seen a car. He's never seen the Internet. He's never seen all of the things that we have learned today. And so John has to use his current vocabulary to describe what he is seeing. Guess what? John has seen the temple already rebuilt. And here the angel says, rise, measure the temple of God. Measure the altar and them that worship therein. Uh, now remember, this is future. John is told to measure the temple. You can't measure something that's not there. He could see literally into the future the temple had been rebuilt. Now let me take you down a little journey this morning by way of introduction. If we were to go to Jerusalem today, as many of us have done, as I have been privileged to do so several times, uh, you cannot even find the trace of a temple. All you would find is the Temple Mount. It's the most contested piece of real estate in the entirety of the world. On the Temple Mount today is, the, is a Muslim mosque, the Mosque of Omar, or what uh, some call the Dome of the Rock. But there's no temple there. There's not a shred of a temple anywhere. Why is that? I take you to Matthew chapter 24 and listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 7 concerning the temple of his day. There shall not be left here one stone upon another. Jesus was telling everyone who would listen, this temple that's here, it's going to go away. So a little research here, we find uh, that the platform upon which the temple was built is the only thing that there might even be 
just a little bit that would take us back 2,000 years ago and built upon this rock is what we call the western part or the wailing wall. Many of us have been able to be there. We've written out a prayer request. We've stuffed it into the wall and we've prayed over that prayer request. Let me give you a history lesson quickly this morning. Shortly after Jesus made this prediction in Matthew chapter number 24, there was a Roman general by the name of Titus who came against Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And he laid siege against Jerusalem. The Romans, however, would not destroy temples. Uh, they actually preserved temples. And Titus gave the word that Herod's temple, the temple that was there in Jerusalem, it was to be preserved. It was not to be touched. But according to history, somehow the temple caught on fire. And when it caught on fire, the rich cedar and other beams began to burn. And the temple and parts of it were overlaid with gold. And everybody had a suspicion that down in the vaults below the temple where it burned, that there were vast treasures to be discovered. And so after the fire had been put out, after the temple had disappeared, the gold had melted and ran into the crevices all around where the temple used to stand. And people, according to history, took pry bars and they pried these stones apart one after another. And just... As Jesus prophesied, no part of the temple was left to be seen, including to this day. But our scripture says this, the temple in Jerusalem must be rebuilt. And did you know that today, right now, in 2022, there are Jews who are making plans to rebuild the temple. I've been to Israel. I've seen the yeshivas. I've seen the rabbinic schools where they're training the young priests and the descendants of Levi to future offer sacrifices in the temple. I've been to the Temple Institute where they're weaving clothing as the, uh, as the Bible describes that the priest will wear, where the artisans are making vessels of silver and gold for the carrying out of the temple worship, where they're making musical instruments as they did according to the prescriptions in the Bible. Today, right now, the Jews are getting ready to rebuild the temple. I have talked to several people in Israel. I have talked to different men who have said that they have been to places where you can see the articles that will go in the future temple. As a matter of fact, some have even tried to lay the foundation of the new temple. And a few years ago, it caused all kinds of mayhem in Israel. I've been through that Hasmonean tunnel uh, called the Rabbi Tunnel. It's a very interesting and intriguing place. It has narrow passages, and there is this spot in that tunnel where they believe the Holy of Holies will be rebuilt. And they've already designated where the Holy of Holies will be. Several years ago, we had the opportunity to be on Temple Mount. Our guide, Ezra, which many of us have grown to love and appreciate, he took us and he said, we're going to walk around. And, he, and because Israel does not control Temple Mount or the Jews do not control Temple Mount, the Arab people control Temple Mount, you are not allowed to pray. You're not allowed to read the Word of God or it will cause a riot right now if you're on Temple Mount. Ezra took us to a spot, and he said, this is the spot when the temple is rebuilt where the Holy of Holies will be. And, and we said, 
can we pray right here? And he says, you can't look down. You cannot bow your head, but you can look up to the heavens and pray. We surrounded that. We looked up into the sky. And one of our men prayed a prayer right there. And they, the, all those Arabs on Temple Mount, they got nervous. They wanted to know what was going on with all of us, this group of 50 people looking up into the air when there was nothing to see. But we prayed right where the Holy of Holies is going to be, uh, be built. My friend, there's coming a time very soon when the temple will be rebuilt. And if you would go today, you would see the Hasidic Jews. They're bobbing their heads up and down on the western wall. They're praying. And you talk to one of them. And you say, what are you praying about? What is it that's so significant about what you're doing? Here's their first answer. We're praying for Messiah to come. And then you're saying, uh, well, what, 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 doesn't Messiah have to come to a temple? We're praying that the temple will be rebuilt. One day, according to Scripture, John reveals to us that there is going to be a temple, and it's going to be measured. And as I study Scripture, I find something very interesting. Remember this, all prophecy works together. And it is necessary for the temple to re be rebuilt because it's a precursor that the Antichrist and his power is going to be seated right there in the temple. And because Jesus said that the Antichrist is going to enter into that temple and he's going to abominate or he's going to make that temple desolate. Let me give you a passage of scripture back in Matthew chapter 24 about what's going to take place in this temple that's going to be rebuilt. In verse 15 and 16 of Matthew chapter 24, it says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. What a rich description. Abomination of desolation. When ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in that holy place. That holy place is part of this temple. And Daniel the prophet, he said this, There's coming an abomination of desolation. Who is going to stand in the holy place. And Jesus said this, Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them be in Judah, flee into the mountains, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor, no, nor ever shall be. Who said that? Some wild-eyed preacher? Who said that? Somebody who was a lunatic? My friend, no. Jesus Christ said that. He said that when you see what Daniel has prophesied, the abomination of desolation in the holy place, he said this, Jesus said this, get out of town. He said, we're going to enter into a new phase of tribulation, and it's going to be called the great tribulation, and nothing like it has ever happened on planet Earth. I find that stunning. Think about this. Wasn't there a great flood? Didn't it wipe out all of humanity? What about a place like Sodom and Gomorrah? It was reduced to nothing but dust and ashes. There were earthquakes that swallowed up whole entire armies in the Old Testament. Yet Jesus said this, Never on planet Earth has there ever been a time of trial and tribulation like coming after the three and a half year mark of the tribulation. Would you take your Bibles for just a moment? Go to 2 Timothy chapter number 2. I'd like for you, I, I'm sorry, uh, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. I'd like for you to see this in your own Bibles. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 
I'd like to read through the first five verses. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians, he's looking into the future. He's talking about what's going to happen. Now remember, he was writing the Word of God under the direct and divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, who was guiding his words, guiding his pen, guiding his thoughts. Listen to it carefully. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, he's talking about the second coming. And by our gathering together unto him. Here, I believe, he is referring to the rapture. That ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit or by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Here, we have to understand, there had gone out a spurious letter saying that they were already living in the great tribulation. And Paul said, no, wait a minute, a little bit too soon here. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there be a falling away first. That's the word for apostasy. And here's what's going to happen. In that day when there's a falling away, Paul said this, that the man of sin will be revealed. You know, we got in trouble the first time in the Garden of Eden by the man of sin. And it's going to come to, it's going to, come to that time when the man of sin sits and stands in the Holy of Holies. He's going to be the epitome of sin, the quintessential representative of sin, the Antichrist. He's going to be the beast, that man of sin be revealed, called the son of perdition. Now watch this. Who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship. Now listen to the next phrase. So that he is as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. My friend, that is the abomination of desolation. Satan himself will sit in the temple of God, and he will declare to the whole world, who's going through the great tribulation, he's going to say these words, I am God. And folks, the entire world will bow at his feet. There is a day coming that the temple will be rebuilt. There's coming a world leader who will one day ensconce himself in that temple in the holy place and say, you've been looking for God. Guess what? You found him. I am God. And this man of sin, this abomination of desolation in the temple of God, he would declare himself to be God. Now that's very deep. We'll get into that a little bit later uh, in our study. But because what I'm trying to do is set the stage. What happens when this happens, when the man of sin, the man of perdition, the Antichrist, the beast, uh, moves into the temple of God, he's going to show himself as God. He'll do it in the middle of the seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. I was asked this question, Pastor, if the, temple is yet been, if the temple has not yet been rebuilt, that means the rapture cannot take place. That seems like a logical question to me because this event that we're talking about this morning literally takes place three and a half years into the Tribulation. My friend, the temple does not have to be completed until the three-and-a-half-year mark. Of the tribulation. I am told that it would only take two years to build the temple. And so if the rapture were to take to place today, which I believe it could, if the rapture were to take place today, there's still plenty of time for the temple to be rebuilt. The Bible never contradicts itself. And we have seen here what's called the great tribulation. 
very quickly I remind you that we examined the seven seals. We got to the seventh seal and it's so horrible that it was revealed to be seven trumpets. We examined each one of those seven trumpets. Now we're right in the middle of this period, uh, which is seven years according to the prophet Daniel and, and chapter 9. And right in the middle of this period, the Bible says the Antichrist is going to come. He's going to move into the temple of God. I believe there's going to be great celebration. There's going to be great fanfare. The temple has been uh, uh, been completed and the whole world will watch the whole world will watch on their smartphone their smart smartphones exactly what is happening as it happens in real time and discover this man who declares himself to be God as he is ushered into the temple of God that's the reason you find here in scripture uh, this phrase why we're reading 42 months or 1260 days uh, 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 all of this refers to that three and a half year mark of the great tribulation 42 months three and a half years three and a half years speaks of division and danger when this man of God moves into the temple showing himself that he is God and God has given us a warning of what will happen God's going to bring two ministers two messengers two mighty prophets and we're going to study those prophets today and next week hence the title of the message persecuted would you go back with me to revelation chapter 11 revelation chapter 11 there are two witnesses that are going to rise up during this horrendous period of time to prophesy or to preach to teach about the real god and may i say parenthetically that god always has his prophets did you know that God has always chosen to use men and women in fact the Bible says in the book of Amos 3 in verse number 7 surely the Lord God will do nothing but revealeth his secret unto his servants the prophets I'm thankful that even today God is still using men to stand in the pulpit and to be a truth teller to tell uh, the truth about the Word of God. Now, I understand there are charlatans today, there are quacks, and there are, are fakes, but this world has been warned. You have been warned. Jesus is coming back. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Do not be deceived, my friend. You have been warned. Well, it's taken us a little while uh, to get through this first part of the message. It's been introductory, but now let's get into the meat of the message as we're introduced to these two prophets. God raises up two men. And we're going to look this week and next week at five facts about these prophets. These are lessons that we can learn about what happens to these prophets when they are persecuted. Go with me to Revelation chapter number 11. The temple has now been rebuilt. The Antichrist has entrenched himself in the temple of God. And we see fact number one. The prophets are spiritually prepared. The prophets are are spiritually prepared the Bible says in Revelation chapter number 11 verses 3 and 4 and I will give power unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth these men are described as olive trees or candlesticks likely uh, uh, the Greek is uh, literally the Greek is lampstands a candle that burns a wick a lampstand burns oil and the Greek word is, is, is here is used as, as giving us a description of a wick and oil that burns they're lampstands they speak of light 
And it speaks of our witnesses that we're introduced to. By the way, the Bible says we're to be light to this world. I wonder if you're a light this morning. The light in the lampstand in the temple burned olive oil, and it's a symbolic. Uh, oil in the Bible is an emblem. It's a symbol of the working of the Holy Spirit of God. I ask you, how does your light shine? Well, John says we're to be like olive trees. The oil of God's Spirit is to be in us. We're to be like lampstands. In Matthew 5 and verse 14, Jesus said, Ye are the light of the world. How many of you remember singing that little chorus? Give me oil, my lamp. Give me oil, my lamp. Keep it burning. How many of you remember that song? I won't sing it for you, but we remember that. That's what it's talking about here. We're to be witnesses with our life about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these witnesses, these two men, they were spiritually prepared. And by the way, if you're going to let your light shine, learn to burn the oil and not the wick. You burn the wick, you're going to burn out and you're going to uh, make a lot of smoke. And you're not going to give out much light. How important it is that we understand what Jesus taught. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said this, Ye shall, ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses about me. That's the symbolic lesson of the olive trees and the lampstand. It's foolish and it's wicked to try to do God's work without God's power. My friend, I, do ne I never want to stand in this pulpit having not asked God to help. I'd like to talk to all the men for just a moment, give you a challenge as we've given you a challenge before. Three times every single Sunday we have a prayer meeting and we invite the men of the church to come to that prayer meeting. We have a prayer, prayer meeting at 8.45 uh, before growth group. And then we have a prayer meeting at 10.20. And then we have a prayer meeting at 4.45 in my office. And I'm so thankful for the many dozens of men who have come through that door praying for God's power, praying that God would use the service, praying that uh, souls would be saved, praying. Folks, without the power of God, we might as well not have church. Period. Uh, I ask you, uh, to pray and be a praying church that God's power be upon whoever graces this pulpit to better preach under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. I would never think of preaching without asking God for his power. We are witnesses. The two men that we read about, they were spiritually prepared. They are olive trees. They are lampstands. They are going to go against the Antichrist. The Bible says they're clothed in sackcloth. What in the world is sackcloth? It was a drab garment that a person would wear when they were in mourning or sorrow. Or in this case, two witnesses that were going to preach the topic, judgment. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Are you ready? Judgment is coming. This world is going to be destroyed. You're going to be destroyed that's what the message was. My friend, I believe in hell. 234 times hell is mentioned in the Bible. It is a real place. In fact, Jesus taught more on the subject of hell than he did heaven because he didn't want anyone to go to hell. I believe in hell. In fact, someone said it this way. If we had more hell in our pulpits, we'd have less in our community. We've gotten away from that uncomfortable topic because preachers don't want to stand and look you in the eye and say, if you do not believe in Jesus, you're going to die and go to hell. Because that turns off a lot of people that think that I have control of my own life. Don't tell me where I'm going to go. Have you ever seen a preacher preach on hell, seem to have glee in his face, and a vindictiveness and a meanness in his heart? I don't think so. If you preach judgment, you ought to do so 
and a spirit of humility and sackcloth. There ought to be a broken heart, and we ought to have a heart that's broken for those multitudes that are marching on their way to hell. First fact of these prophets is they were spiritually prepared. That's where you could close up your notes and close up your Bibles because I want to share an illustration and that way we won't be distracted on my illustration. Next week, please bring back your notes and we'll look at four more facts about these two witnesses. By the way, these, this, isn't, this isn't some type of mysticism. This isn't some type of allegory. There's literally going to be two men at three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. They're going to preach judgment on this earth. How spiritually prepared are you? Allow me to give you an illustration that I think will help tie this together. There are several of us who enjoy cycling in the church. Many of you know that, and you know, you, you, you know that because of a couple of negative experiences I've had in cycling. In three years, though, I've ridden over 15,000 miles in cycling. So there's been a lot of miles that there have not been negative experiences. Before I ever got into cycling, I heard that there was the tour, there was the El Tour de Tucson. I saw, I heard that there were bicycling paths, but it didn't really apply to me. And I lived here for 10 years before I ever got onto a bicycle. And I never ever paid attention to a flag. In fact, I could probably pass two dozen bicyclists and I maybe just like we see a red light and a green light I saw the cyclist but I never paid attention three years ago all of that changed I took up a new hobby at the behest of my son Pastor Jonathan he said dad you're getting fat you need to do something children can get away with saying things that you can't so I began my journey cycling may I tell you what's happened in three years I see every cyclist as soon as I see that cyclist, I want to know what kind of bike they're riding. And so I slow down. I look at them. I see what they're, how they're dressed. I make a determination. Are they a real cyclist or a wannabe cyclist? <laughs> they're not wearing a helmet and they're just wearing blue jeans. I could quickly dismiss them. They know nothing about cycling. Oh, they got that is a nice bike. Either they're really rich or they are really a good cyclist. I see every flag. Do you know why I look at every flag? Because I'm looking at what direction the wind is blowing. Oh, man, if I was going that direction, I could set a personal record, a PR. I see every flag. I see every cyclist. Every time now on the news and every time when I read the news reports on the Internet, I see cyclists hit, cyclists killed, and I immediately read that article. I never did that in the first 10 years wasn't important to me. It wasn't something that I cared about. Now, in three years, I notice every cyclist. I notice what they're, what, what they're wearing. Um, in fact, sometimes a cyclist will get killed. I want to know the details. Is this giving cycling a bad name in our community? Just this past week, someone was killed in Tucson. And here he was going the wrong way on an e-bike and, and, and uh, ignoring, the, ignoring the laws of our road. And he got killed. He brought that on himself. And now for, uh, for, for, forever, the guy that, that hit him has to live with that, that he was involved in an accident, a guy got killed, and it wasn't his fault. I noticed everything about cycling. Before, I never did. Now, we have a lost 
and dying world. We are Christians. If we've made that commitment to the Lord and by faith believed in Him, asked Him to be our Lord and Savior, acknowledged our sin, and by faith accepted Him, we have a relationship with an amen. How many of you have done that? You're a cyclist. You notice things. As a a Christian cyclist, just follow my illustration. It may be weird. You could correct me later, all right? As a Christian cyclist, you notice as a Christian, oh, I notice other people, and ah, I dismiss them. Whoa, there's somebody that's really on fire for the Lord. If you're not spiritually prepared, if you're not ready, you don't even see other people. I'm afraid that we as believers, we as Christians, we are spiritually immature. We no longer see the lost. By the way, they're an inconvenience to us. They were rude. They cut us off. They didn't give us good service at the restaurant. And we become like the jury, and we make a determination. I don't like that person. And we never see other people as that's somebody that needs our help. Friends, I'm afraid a lot of times, like I was three years ago, I never even saw a cyclist. I knew they were around. Never saw them because I wasn't interested in them. Friends, as a Christian, I need to be interested in everybody because they are lost without Christ, marching to hell. And by the way, God If it happens in their lifetime, the rapture takes place and they live through the tribulation, God's going to bring judgment upon them. And I never saw them. I never witnessed to them. I never cared about them. I wasn't interested. Folks, if we're going to be like the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, we've got to be spiritually prepared. And it takes time to prepare. And we've got to be faithful. And we've got to get the scales off our eyes. We've got to trim the wick. We've got to fill the oil. In other words, we've got to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. We've got to be a brilliant light. Folks, that's our responsibility. It's not somebody else's responsibility. It's our responsibility.